You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. All right, so let's jump right in. Um, we're we're going to kind of work through three points this morning. Uh, the, f- the first one, though, is going to feel almost like a little mini-sermon inside of a sermon, so just know that. Um, we're going to talk about children and obedience first, right? So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, here's what I like about Paul is that um, generally with the majority of his writing, there's not a lot of room for ambiguity, right? So if you are a child in the church, you obey your parents for this is right. I don't think I need to explain that any further. But I do think there are three words in that sentence that if we, that if we don't take note of and if we don't understand, we will misinterpret and misunderstand the goal that Paul is working towards here when he tells children to obey their parents. And that's these three words. Obey your parents in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And if you've been paying attention the past couple of weeks, then you've probably seen something similar to that language used throughout the text. When he addresses husbands, he says to do this as to the Lord. When he talks to wives, as to the Lord. When he talks to the people in general, in or out of reverence for the Lord, right? So Paul consistently throughout Ephesians chapter 5 and this beginning portion of Ephesians chapter 6 is constantly reminding the people where their morality, where their behavior is born from, right? It's not from a place of trying to earn God's acceptance. Rather, it's from a place of security in God's acceptance that he's already given to us in Jesus. And so a child's obedience, yes, at first, is driven out of sheer respect for the power that the parent has over them, right? In that there was a moment, most likely, where, where you, you didn't know Jesus, but you knew that mommy and daddy have the power to give and to take away. They can give the nerd rope and they can take away the nerd rope, right? Like, and because of that, and because I know that, like, I, I'm going to do what I need to do to obtain the precious nerd rope. But that shouldn't be our ultimate goal or our ultimate hope for our children. For the Christian parent, our hope is that our child's obedience comes first from the cultivation of godliness in them, that they would obey in the Lord because that's what's right. So it's not the obedience necessarily. The obedience is a symptom of something that is already in them, which is the Lord at work, the Spirit cultivating the lives, the hearts, the minds of our children. So again, much like all of Ephesians chapter 5, And all of Paul's writing, he's reminding us that what we want for our children is not a moral standard or a morality, but a relationship with a God that loves them. So, this is a a moral imperative from Paul, rooted in an indicative, meaning that which is so of children who belong to Jesus, right? Now, that's the imperative of obedience, but Paul's going to root that obedience in something in something larger than just Paul's sort of general wise counsel, right? So Paul wants us to know that this is just not Paul this is not just Paul's good advice. 
Paul's tips to a better life, but that this is rooted in something. The root of obedience is this, 6 verse 2, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. So Paul's command is linked to a commandment, a capital C commandment, meaning one of the ten that the Lord gave in the Decalogue to Moses. And this, this is what makes Paul's assertion of the rightness of his own command in verse 1 true. Not firstly because Paul said it, but because God said it. Now here's the thing, I recognize Honor and obey are not synonymous terms, but what Paul is saying is that obedience is a necessary component of honor for those of us who are children. Honor your father and mother. Part of that is obedience to your father and mother. And God's commandment is linked to a promise that tells us what the fruit of obedience is, right? So we've seen the imperative of obedience, we see the root of obedience, and now we see the fruit of that obedience. Verse 3 says, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now here's the thing, at first glance we read that and, and maybe take it fairly simply, right? In, the, in that, we can read that and say, okay, um, parents uh, have the physical power and ability to bring your life to an early end, so obey them. <laughs> like they do, like, you know, if, if Olivia ever, for, I mean, if she ever for whatever reason wants to wrestle me, like I will dominate her. <laughs> it's oh, like there's, there's no contest, no contest of strength, right? And so if we read it at first glance, we may get that impression in that like it's kind of almost threatening, right? Obey your parents, honor them, that it may go well with you, that you might live to a natural death. <laughs> and yet, uh, and we're going to have to do this quickly, what Paul is saying here is, is completely and entirely loaded with historical significance for the people that he's talking to. You see, um, this command given by God to honor your father and mother was given to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And it was a command that was given to them for their good, for their flourishing, and for their distinctness in the midst of a people who did not do those things, Right? And this people that God redeemed out of slavery, used Moses to liberate from Egypt, sent out into the desert, God promised to this people that he would take them to a land, to a physical location, a place, what, flowing with milk and honey, or better understood as the place where you will have no needs or where all of your needs will be met. So that's the Old, under, Old Testament understanding of the land. The land had a name. It was named Canaan. But you'll notice that Paul leaves out that descriptor, that physical location, and here's why. And again, I know this is quick. Here's why. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the land of promise was a place where the people of God would have everything that they needed. But in the New Testament, the place where the people of God have everything they need is a person, and his name is Jesus. 
And so the land now, as Paul is using the term, is the land that Jesus is establishing in the new heavens and the new earth. The, the, you know that verse that we read at, at Christmas, right? And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he's going to reign in peace. He's talking about that place. He's saying that obedience and honor in a child for their parents is ultimately an outward sign that they are obeying that first command. Right, so while this may have sounded oppressive at first from honor, obey, this is right, that it may go well with you, the command of God is ultimately meant to lead to our flourishing and to the flourishing of our children. I believe it was Martin Luther that, that said this, and I may, be mis- I may be misquoting the reference, but I, I know that somebody smarter than me said it, so I'm going to say it. <laughs> but he says this, If we break any of the latter nine commandments, the root of that is ultimately that we have first broken the first commandment. So what's the first commandment? First commandment says, have no other gods before me. So here's an example. If you commit adultery, what Martin Luther or whoever it was that said it is saying is that if you committed adultery, it's ultimately because you first chose a God to elevate above the, the, the real and true God. Either the God of your own comfort, the God of your own satisfaction, right? That you've elevated something above God and because of that you have pursued it as your ultimate desire. And so in breaking the ninth commandment, you first broke the first. And so what Paul is saying here when he's talking to children and telling them to obey their parents in the Lord, to honor their father and mother, what he's actually saying is that as we cultivate the fourth commandment in our children, our hope is that that will lead them to honor the first commandment, which is the first and most important one, have no other gods before me. So we don't parent kids to be obedient just for our comfort and for the ease of parenting that comes from obedient children. We do so in order to cultivate godliness. So for those of us that are parents in the room, here's here's my question. If the Bible is telling us that the goal of parenting is to cultivate obedience to the first commandment, are we doing that? Because let me be very transparent here. My fear for myself And the real danger that I see is that I would make the goal of my parenting something other than godliness in my child. And here's here's a few examples, just a couple. My fear for myself and the real danger that I see is that I would make the goal of my parenting morality so that when people see my kids behaving well, they think good of me. So I'm parenting them to obey for my good. Or that I would make the goal of my parenting their education or their success because that's what I most value. My fear is that I would take a good thing and make it a God thing. And if you want to know how to know, I think we need to consistently and constantly be asking ourselves this question. What is it that governs my parenting decisions? 
Because if the worship of God is most important to me, then the local church, my redeemed family, where worship of God is cultivated, is what will govern my decisions rather than the nicer home in the suburbs, rather than the better schools in the suburbs, rather than X, Y, and Z. So let me be real honest. I never thought about the schools in Montrose or in the inner city until I had a kid. And I'll tell you what, you start thinking a little bit differently about the way you make decisions. But what I think we need to do and what I'm asking the Lord to do is to make cultivating obedience to God in my child, govern my decisions. And, and, and here's, what, here's what I'm saying in that, which this is just insane. If you're, if you're uh, in the room and you are a covenant member of Sojourn, What I'm saying is that I am trusting this family, this people to help me, to come alongside me, to cultivate obedience to God in my child. And I'm so convinced and so confident that not only the Lord can, but the Lord will do that in and through me and through you, that I'm willing to stay here and see that done. Even in the midst of worse schools, more expensive living, smaller homes, and all that other stuff. All right, so now let's talk about parents and cultivation. We talked about children and obedience, parents and cultivation. Ephesians 6, 4 reads like this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, let's just break it down really quickly, right? First, he says fathers. Now, hear this. This does not, this text does not exclude mothers. Mothers, you should also not provoke your children to anger. But what this shows us is that fathers are primarily responsible for the spiritual climate of their homes as the servant leaders of their families. And I think that needs to be said because in our culture, it is generally believed that the well-being and the raising of the child is a responsibility for the mother And the father is just some sort of passive onlooker. The father gets to come home, kick back the lazy boy, turn on Sports Center, and drink a beer. And Paul is saying, No, fathers, fathers, you have a real and distinct responsibility for the children that you father. You see, men were prone to this in Paul's day also, and he rebukes them for it, right? Now, let me back up and just look at kind of the entirety of what we've preached through Ephesians 5 and the beginning of Ephesians 6. For the men in the room, what Paul is saying in this entire part of Ephesians, whether we are single, whether we are husbands, whether we are fathers, what Paul is saying is that godly men expend themselves for their wives, for their families, and for their churches just like God expended himself for them. And we'll talk about that more deeply in a moment. So he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now let me make a distinction, right? He's talking about justified anger. He's not talking about the mommy won't give me a snow cone, so I'm going to throw a tantrum anger. He's talking about justified anger. And if you get into the nuance of the original language, there's there's really two ways in which in which Paul is is expressing what a justified anger could be comprised of for a child. 
And it's two things. Number one, unreasonable harsh, harshness. So the punishment doesn't fit the crime, right? Cruel and unusual. Or two, hypocritical parenting behavior. Meaning we're going to say one thing, we're going to say one thing characterizes our family, but then we're going to operate in a completely different way. I mean, let's, so let's just be honest, right? The Many people's concern and difficulty and discomfort with the church is precisely that. It's frustrating that there would be a group of people that say they believe one thing and then they do another, right? If that's frustrating for you, imagine how frustrating that is for your children who don't have the power or the ability to say, well, I'll just leave. They sit under that tyranny. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, don't provoke them to a justified anger. Don't be unreasonably harsh. Don't be hypocritical in your parenting. And then he gives us the alternative. Instead, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Several words that we're not particularly fond of, but that's okay. So what does Paul mean when he says, bring your children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord? Here's two uh, one-sentence definitions for both of those words from, from, again, a man much smarter than me by the name of R.C. Sproul. He defines discipline like this. Discipline is the shaping of the will through training and correction. And instruction is the shaping of the mind through teaching and admonition. And what we see and what we get in the combination of those two things is both proactive and reactive parenting. So there's a proactive teaching, admonishing element. And then when our kids go astray, there's a loving, not harsh, not hypocritical reminder, not only of grace, but of, but of how they should live as beneficiaries of grace. Let me boil it down uh, into, into sort of one short, cohesive thought. When Paul says, do not provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, he's making a balancing statement. He's making a balancing statement. When he says, do not provoke them, he says, don't be unreasonably, unreasonably harsh. But when he says, bring them up, he's saying, don't be careless or lazy either. I'm going, to put it, I'm going to try to put it in one sentence, how we accomplish this, this, this balance, this, this middle ground where we are not harsh, but we are still disciplining, actively instructing our children. If we don't have a grip on grace, we won't have the courage to discipline. But if, the, but if grace has no grip on us, there will be no constraint to our discipline. Right? So let me say that again. If we don't have a grip on grace, we won't have the courage to discipline. But if grace has no grip on us, there will be no constraint to our discipline. So here's what I mean by that. If we don't have a grip on God's grace towards us in and through the person and work of Jesus, then we'll be so concerned about messing it up, about doing it the wrong way, that we won't have the courage to discipline our children. Because we don't really believe that there's grace for us when we do mess it up when we are overly harsh, when we are hypocritical, because those times will come. But in the same vein, 
If we don't have God's grace actively gripping us, then we won't give grace in our discipline to the measure that God has given us grace in his discipline of us. Right? What is, what is the grace that God has extended to us? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, that principle governs the way we treat our children. Right? We want to be we want to have a grip on what grace really is, and we want for that grace to have gripped us so that we can parent children without provoking them, but simultaneously having the courage to discipline and instruct them in the Lord. And here's the thing. I think this is broadly applicable, not just to parents and children, but to, but to brothers and sisters within the church. We're so afraid of that word, church discipline. So afraid to call one another out on things that we see in, in one another that, that are ungodly because we're worried about stepping on toes. And, and what we're, what, what's, what's going wrong there is that um, we don't have a grip on grace. We don't believe that God is gracious to us in the discipline that he extends through his people. And then the reason that we have such a, a hard time with that is because we've seen some people that didn't have that didn't have grace that had gripped them, and so they responded harshly. So we've seen those things do two things done poorly. But let me read Hebrews 12 so that we get a, just a good understanding of, of why discipline is good for us, why discipline is good for our children. Hebrews 12, right? Um, the, the author of Hebrews is writing about Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith right? Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And this is, what, this is what reads shortly thereafter, starting in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And he's going to quote, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now skip down uh, to verse 11. It says this, For at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So here's the thing. Each and every parent in this room, each and every married person in this room, each and every single person in this room, each and every adolescent in this room, each and every child in this room, when discipline is extended to them, it is a grace of God. And whether that is extended through a parent-child relationship or whether that is extended through a brother-sister relationship or whether that is expended through a pastor-member relationship or a member-pastor relationship. The Lord is good and generous in disciplining us. And so we are good and generous in disciplining our children. Don't you see? The section is entitled, Jesus, the Founder and Perfecter of Our Faith. 
And Jesus has promised us that he's not just begun a good work in us that we have to complete, but rather that he's begun a good work in us and that he is faithful to complete that good work in us. One of the ways that he goes about completing that good work in us is through discipline. And for those of us who are parents in the room, we have a good work to be done. And we need to be faithful in doing that by the power of the Spirit, through the gospel of Jesus, with the grace of God ever present for us when we fail. Okay, this is where I want to close. Let's talk a little bit about the church family and the biological family, right? So we've talked about children and obedience, um, parents and cultivating, and now we're going to talk about church family and biological family. Now remember, Ephesians chapter 5, right? This... (laughs) This portion of text, these four verses that we've read today, all happen in the context of a spiritual family, a church family, right? He's talking to all of the people in verse five when he, or in chapter five when he says, "Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God." And then he says, look, children, this is how you do that. And parents, this is how you do that. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord. So here's three things that I think we can take uh, uh, from this, just practically speaking. The first thing, godly parents imitate God by giving themselves up for their children. So parents, as imitators of God, as beloved children, we walk in love towards our children as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us by doing precisely that. Godly parents imitate God by giving themselves up for their children. And here's the thing, that is only possible for us as parents when we know to what extent God gave himself up for us. So maybe you're not a parent in the room this morning, you want to be a great parent in the future, strive to know what is the length, the breadth, the depth, the width of God's love for you in Christ Jesus. You know, there's a verse that whether, whether you have little exposure to the Bible no exposure to the Bible or, or a lot of it, you've probably at least heard this. It goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If we want to imitate God, that means we give up what is most precious for us, to us, for the sake of another. In the context of the parent-child relationship, that means that you give yourself up and you give what you think you've earned or you think you've deserved or what what may even be most precious to you, you give that up for the sake of your child, just like God gave up his son for the sake of his adopted children. In a culture that purchases bigger homes, nicer cars, and longer vacations at the price of absentee parents, God speaks into that and calls us to nurture our children as God has nurtured us and never sacrifice their good for our own. That's the thing, you don't get to do that. If your career is going to get in the way, 
of nurturing your child, maybe it's time to contemplate what, that, what the goal of that career really is. Is it building up your resume or is it providing a means by which you can care for the family that God's given you? It's a good question to ask. And here's what's, what's so important, and I think um, I saved this for now for, for a reason. When Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up, that's actually a, um, it's not a holistic translation of what Paul is actually saying there. When he says bring them up, part of the original language, part of what is connoted by the language that Paul uses in the Greek there is let them be cherished. Let our children be cherished as God has cherished us. Does that mean we make them ultimate? No, absolutely not. But it means that we care for them. We cherish them. We give ourselves up for them. Second thing, godly children imitate God by obeying their parents, right? So if you want to know, like, is the Lord at work in the life of my child? One of the ways to diagnose that, one of the ways to see that is, are they obedient? Do they honor? Do they honor you? Because if they're honoring you, there's a good chance that they're doing that because they honor God first. Because you know what? Most of us as parents, we're not honorable. I mean, really, think about it. Like, in your weakest moments, are you honorable? No. Not at all. Like, I've already had moments with Olivia where I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, if she was of the age where uh, an apology could be understood, I would offer it swiftly. Godly children imitate God by obeying their parents. But this is only possible when children know to what extent Jesus obeyed his parents. So we have to teach them this, right? How did Jesus obey his father? Children will never be obedient in the Lord if they don't know the Lord. That's the implication of this. So again, it's, it's a morality that's born out of a relationship that pre-exists it, that empowers it, that sustains it, that enables that kind of behavior. So if Jesus is our impetus, our example of that obedience, I think there's two really great, great moments in Scripture where we see his obedience at play. I reference it all the time, Philippians chapter 2, right? God tells Jesus to go, to take upon himself flesh. And this is Jesus' response. God, although I am equal with you, Get that. Although I am equal with you, I do not consider that equality as something to be grasped. I'm going to humble myself. I'll be made into the form of a man and I'll become obedient, obedient even to death on a cross. And of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus says, is there any other way? And God says, no. And Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. Now, um, I, I want to take a brief aside here, and I want to, <laughs> I meant to do this a minute ago, so the flow is a little off, but that's okay. When Jesus says, I don't consider my equality with, with you as something to be grasped, here's what I want us to understand. And again, this is totally aside, like mark it off in the margins, whatever you want. 
our children, the children of our church community, and the children of our city are equal with us in dignity and in worth. The unfortunate reality is that in much of news media, in much of entertainment media, children are seen as something to be managed, something to be managed in such a way that they are of least inconvenience to you. And that's wrong. You wouldn't want to be managed that way. No, they are equal and dignity, in dignity and in worth, and they should be protected as such. Our children are not inconveniences. They are gifts from God that we've been given to steward for His glory. Uh, third and final thing. Godly people join the church in godly parenting and cultivating godly children. And this is only possible when the church knows to what extent God has joined the church together as family. So Ephesians chapter 4, just the one chapter, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, a couple of chapters before the one that we just read, this is what Paul says. Now remember, right? Ephesians 6 is read in light of this reality. Verse 14, for he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And verses 18 and 19. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The work that Jesus did enjoined biological families into one larger spiritual family, which is why everyone from Sojourn that I've introduced my daughter Olivia to, I've introduced them as aunt or uncle. Because it's a tangible way to remind Nicole, to remind myself, Nicole's my wife, if you don't know her, to, to remind Nicole, to remind myself, and to remind us that we are a redeemed family and that Olivia belongs to you as much as she belongs to me. And this is why. This is why the neighborhood parish is important and this is why Sojourn Kids is important. They're not there to, right, right? Like Sojourn Kids is not just, let's, let us manage your inconvenient children while you sit and hear, hear someone preach so that we don't have to listen to them make noise. Right? No, it's like that we want to be able to teach them the gospel in that situation. When children come to parish, right, it's not just, let's just throw them in the back room and hopefully they won't kill each other. It's like, no, they're here. We want to teach them the gospel in that context. All of us have a responsibility to do that. I need you to do that. I trust you to do that. I'm asking the Lord to do that in a way that is beautiful and glorious for the sake of his name and his fame. We are a redeemed family. Let's pray.